Uh, there are many great stories of survivors throughout history and of recent history, you might say. Uh, you might remember the wild boars. No, there were the Thai soccer team. Now you remember them, right? Back in uh, June of 2018, the 12 members plus their coach, they got stranded in a cave for 17 days and it took divers to bring them out. An amazing story. And they all survived. Of course, that one uh, Thai SEAL team member passed away. Uh, Angela Hernandez, uh, might sound like a member here almost, uh, was driving near Big Sur and on Highway 1 in Southern California when her SUV, she was in her SUV Jeep and an animal of some sort was crossing the road and she swerved to miss it. Don't, if it's small, don't swerve, people. Uh, and she ran off the road uh, off a cliff, tumbled down a cliff of 200 feet into a rocky beach and out into the water. She suffered a, a brain hemorrhage, fractured rib, broken collarbone, ruptured blood vessels in her eyes, a collapsed lung, and uh, yet she didn't die, but she was in the water. So she actually had a multi-tool that she broke the window out, and she crawled out of the car and got to the beach. And you would think, well, nobody's ever going to come and find her there, but it just so happened, just so happened. Hikers were... Uh, scouting out good fishing spots along that particular beach, and they came across, saw the wrecked car, and so they kind of looked. They found her crumpled up on some rocks. She survived. The air lifted her out. There's uh, Stephen Callahan, who was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean solo. That takes a lot of courage just to attempt that. He was in a 6.5-meter sloop. Uh, this was back in January of 1981, and one night there was a terrible storm. And you think, well, the storm got him, but that's not right. He wasn't actually afraid of the storm, handled that pretty good. But in the morning, he discovered that sometime in the storm, a shark had bit a hole in the bottom of his boat. And so he, he had to basically clamber into a six-foot circular raft where he was adrift for 800 miles west of the Canary Islands, he had a uh, spear gun, and he had a solar water steel thing, and so he was able to spearfish, and he was able to make water out of salt water. Uh, he lost a third of his body weight, but he was finally spotted by some fishermen off the coast of uh, Guadalupe, and uh, he was adrift for 76 days alone. There's the story of the Robinson family in uh, June 15, 1972. They were at the Galapagos Islands in uh, quite a large sailboat, pretty good-sized family. And they said a group, a pod of killer whales attacked their boat. Never heard of that before, but it literally destroyed their boat. They crawled into their uh, small dinghy that came behind. Uh, they had six days' worth of food. And they lived on rainwater, and they hunted turtles, sea turtles. And uh, after 16 days, the, the raft that they also used, they had a raft and a dinghy, and uh, it went bad, sun and people in it. 
And so they all ended up in this 10-foot boat, the, the dinghy, and they were there until July the 23rd, 1972, about 10 days until some Japanese fishermen found them. And they were in the middle of nowhere, really. Uh, there is the story of, you may have seen this a couple of years ago, Harrison of Keeney, uh, May the 28th, 2013. There were divers diving the wreckage of the Jackson 4, which was a ship, a boat that had capsized uh, off the coast of Nigeria, and it, was, it had sunk in 100-foot deep water. Uh, which is kind of unusual that uh, that anybody even dives one that deep. And yet these guys were kind of looking to see what they could scavenge. And while they were down there tapping on things, he, who was uh, Harrison O'Keen, was the ship's cook, who got caught in that, and he was in a pocket of air 100 feet deep. And he had been there for three days. It's unusual that he would survive at all because of that depth and the air pressure, water pressure. But he heard the knocking and he knocked back and they had to send a decompression chamber to get him out where he stayed in the decompression chamber for two days to even get out because he was so deep. Of course, there's the story of the endurance expedition. You've probably heard that. You might have studied it about Ernest uh, Shackleton who had been to the South Pole once before, but he was going to try it again in 1914. It took a group of 28 men who their ship, the, uh, uh, the name of it was the Endurance, got caught in the ice, and the ice slowly closed in on it, ripped it apart. They ran out of supplies, and so they took some of the life ro- uh, boats that they had and sailed on the Arctic Sea 14 days to reach one uh, island uh, further out. And then two or three of them got in a boat that they reconfigured, left the other men there to kill and eat seal, whatever they could do, and stay huddled up. And uh, they made an expedition of right at 1,000 miles in those kind of seas to get to an island where they could get a ship and come back and get them. And when they got back, they were all okay. 28 men survived. No one died. It's an amazing story that anybody survived, but... All of them and none were hurt. Then there's the Julian Kopchek uh, story of Christmas Eve 1971. She was on a Lanza flight 508 that was struck by lightning. And the plane disintegrated in midair. And she found herself when she woke up strapped in her airplane seat two miles above the Peruvian rainforest. She was battered and bruised, and her collarbone was broken, but she was alive. She was the only survivor of the flight. Everyone else perished in that, uh, basically disintegrating in air. But she was in the wilderness alone then. The only thing she found and had was a few pieces of candy, and she found a stream, and she began to walk in the stream, downstream for nine days, And uh, she had some cuts, and maggots got in her cuts. But nine days, she found an encampment uh, where there had been some uh, loggers there. And she found some gasoline and poured it in and killed the maggots. Uh, A few hours later, after she'd been there, just a few hours, the the lumber guys came in and found her, and she was airlifted out. Fine. 
I mean, your airplane disintegrates in midair and she survived. Of course, we all know the Apollo 13 story about the faulty wiring that ignited an oxygen tank, blowing out part of the spaceship, and uh, that they had to make the trip all the way around the moon still. And, uh, and not only that, but they had to use the lunar limb as uh, there wasn't enough uh, oxygen left in the command module and there wasn't enough water or anything left because it was basically not functioning anymore. So they made a CO2 filter because it, the lunar limb wasn't designed for three men. It was designed for two and it had to scrub uh, the CO2 out of the air. And they lived on a day and a half worth of food, which was a day and a half for two. Three lived on that for four days for three. And on the back side of the moon, they had to use the lunar limb and do an orbital correction. And uh, they had like a, they had a 2% window and they hit it and came back to earth. There is the story of Aaron Ralston, who you probably remember. He's the guy who liked to hike and he hiked alone in some areas where there were these boulders and his arm got caught between two and he had to eventually cut his own arm off to survive. There's the story of Ada Blackjack, who was an Alaskan uh, native Indian of the Inupi. Uh, she was hired by some Canadians to go on an expedition to what was called, what is still called the Wrangell Islands that is today uh, under Rosh, uh, Russian, Russian, Russian territory. Uh, they wanted to claim it in the name of Canada because nobody had ever stayed there. All you had to do to claim it was to go there and stay there for an X amount of time and it became Canadian territory. So they made the trip. She was to be their seamstress and their cook. Cook. Five were, went on this trip, uh, and they were left on the island on September the 16th, 1921. A long time ago, right? And uh, their rations began to grow low. And so three of them went for help, and she had to stay with an ailing crew crewmate. So it's just two of them stayed, and she had to take care of him. Later, that same man died. He, he got so sick he died. But she was left alone, and they did not come for her for two years. And she had to fend off polar bears, hunt seals, and yet she stayed alive, and she was rescued uh, August the 28th, 1923. But the University of Alaska, Anchorage, says that they did not receive her back with a hero's welcome. But she was criticized because she did not save the crewmate. And even the family wanted to almost sue her for a while. I think they decided she didn't have anything. And eventually they vindicated her when they heard the full story. But she spent the rest of her life in poverty until she died in 1983. Survivor. Ruth and Naomi are survivors. There's four truths that I want you to get tonight on redemption, survival in these women's stories. Number one. The redemption of survivors is a relative's work. It's an important lesson. There are people that don't get this lesson. It isn't everybody's responsibility to take care of your family. Read what this says and stay with me just a moment. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken to came by. You heard that earlier. Drop down to verse 6. And the close relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself, 
lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. There is a relative that has to pay a lot. In this case, it was going to be a lot. It was the value till the year of Jubilee, or it was two-fifths over normal because it had to be purchased in the name of two people. That's a lot of money, and it's above what you would normally pay for property, and you're only doing it because it's the right thing to do, not because it was going to advantage you that much, but it was keeping it within the family. There is a relative of primary duty, though, that we need to not forget. First Timothy 5 and verse 8 says that you are to provide, uh, a man is to provide for his own, especially those of his own household, or he is worse than an infidel if he doesn't do it. Verse 16 goes on to say that you do not let the church be burdened. Now, I mean nothing toward anybody here. What I'm fixing to say, I've got no axe to grind, okay? It is not our responsibility to take care of your extended family. It is your responsibility to take care of your family. It is your responsibility to take care of your extended family. We know there are mitigating circumstances, and therefore we step in. But it is ultimately your responsibility. Amen? Amen. So that's what we take on. In this case, that's what's happening. Relatives are taking on their responsibility. This is the way it's supposed to work. So redemption of survivors is a relative's work. Second truth, and that is the redemption of survivors is a reviewed work. Everything is subject to being reviewed. Look at what happens in this text. We won't read it all. Uh, This was the custom of former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anyone. uh, One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. I don't think they kept the sandal, but it was a sign. It was one of those things you just do. I want you to focus a little bit differently here. It says in verse 8, Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And then verse 9, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. I want you to drop down in verse 10 again. And it says, Moreover, uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Again, that term witnesses, verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. That's an important thing. I think we need to recognize there is always a review of what's being done. What you do, how you handle your affairs is being reviewed. How you handle your money, how you handle everything you do is reviewed. It's first reviewed by heaven. You are watched and you are watched specifically how you treat your widows and the people of your family that don't have as much as you. 
Uh, you're watched by God. Job 7 verse 20. He's the watcher of our soul. He watches us. But Daniel 4, 13 and verse 20 calls angels watchers. So angels are watching us now. There are probably some in this room. We know that they camp round about the righteous. So we know that they are always near and they're watching. And they're watching and they observe how we treat each other. But specifically how we treat those who aren't doing as well as the rest of us. They really pay attention to that. And the departed watch us. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And it's making reference to the idea of the cloud of witnesses mentioned in the chapter before. So the departed somehow are able to observe how we treat their relatives. So how you treat your relatives are being reviewed by your relatives that got you here. So there is a review not only by heaven, but there's also a review by earth. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 says, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit them to faithful brethren. But here's the point. Uh, He knew he was being watched by the brethren. And whether you know it or not, you are watched and you are talked about. You say, well, that sounds like gossip. Well, you can call it whatever you want. Are you listening? You can call it whatever you want. Every last person in this room has been talked about when you weren't in the room. And if you don't recognize that, you, you, you've been smoking something, I think. Listen, the, everybody gets talked about. Everybody. You want people to say good things about you behind your back. Amen? And especially in how you treat your family and particularly how you treat the ones who aren't doing as well in your family. They pay attention. So redemption of survivors is a reviewed work. And it should be. There were witnesses to what's happening here. And there should have been. That's what it's supposed to be. So, yeah, we'll step in to help if we need to. But honestly, you should step in first. Then the next little truth, and that is the redemption of survivors is a restorative work. Pick up with me now in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. Do you believe the Lord did that or was just natural? Said the Lord did it, didn't it? And she bore a son. Maybe we should just assume it's the Lord because it's such a blessing. Amen? Just assume it's the Lord. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. So they believed it was the Lord. Who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. Verse 15 is really the passage I want you to look at. And may he be to you a restorer of life. And a nourisher of your old age. Interesting. And he's saying this to Naomi, not to Ruth. So he's talking about the blessing in her old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. There is a restoration for those past pleasure. And by the way, it does happen. I said, made reference to it this morning. 
It is the truth. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1. Before the difficult days come and the years draw nigh when you say, I have no pleasure in them. It's just the truth. Now that I'm 63, I think I can say this. Those of you young kids don't know this yet. But uh, it gets to the point there's just not as much fun. It's just not as much fun as you used to have. Things aren't that new. I've been to the movies. I've been out to eat. I've traveled a little bit. I've seen enough that if I never get to do it again, I don't miss it. I raised on the fishing camp and I swam an average of six hours a day for several years during the whole summer. If I never swim again, I'm okay. My family doesn't understand that. I fished every day for months on end. I fished hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. If I never go fishing again, I'm okay. Now, I see you doing that, but you didn't do what I did. I got it. So here's the deal. At some point, and this is the truth, at some point, the most fun you have wears thin. Whatever it is, wears thin. There's going to be a day when the pleasure passes. There is a restoration, though, even after that happens. That's what I'm pointing to. Even when that happens, there could be some refreshment. There is a restoration for survivors with family. And I can testify, as many of you can, that grandchildren are a restorer of life. Can I get a high five, Riley May? Okay, Proverbs 17, verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. Psalm 128, verse 6. Yes, may you see your children's children. If I'd have known grandkids were this much fun, I'd have skipped kids, gone straight to grandkids. (laughs) There are things that are more valuable than life. Seeing your grandkids are more valuable than living. It's true. Redemption of a survivor is a restorative work. When things work out, it can restore you. Naomi needed restoring. She was bitter. And God restored her. Some of you have been through some bitter things. I want to tell you from personal experience. Give God some room. He will. Restore you if you live. He will. Finally, the redemption of, of survivors is a royal work. Beginning verse 17 of Ruth 4. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. I don't know if you paid attention there for just a second, but there is a royal story in every survivor's story, and this indicates when this book was written. This book wasn't written during the lifetime of Ruth. They wouldn't have had these... It was written at least 120 years after the lifetime of Ruth. When David was king. Or after that. 
it had to be at least 1,160 years before Jesus was king. But this is the story of Obed, which was in the lineage to Jesus. And he was called a servant here, which makes an interesting thing. Because if you remember every time Ruth spoke to Boaz, what did she call herself? Servant. Your servant. There is a redemption story in every royal story. In Matthew 1 and verse 5, it Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? The harlot from Jericho. Now, isn't that interesting? Another Gentile, but one who wasn't really living right. But she changed her life. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. So, Boaz mother had been a harlot. Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Maybe that's one reason Boaz had a little more sympathy for Ruth. What do you think? A Moabite. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse, of course, begat David the king. This is the Lord's work, and it's royal in our eyes. Amen. That God would use people like this to teach us something. Redemption of survivors is a royal work. And it may look dirty to some people, but it's a beautiful thing, what God does. So, this is the simple lesson tonight. It's a relative's work. It's a reviewed work. It's a restorative work. It's a royal work. There's a passage, 1 Kings 7 verse 21 says, Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule. This is Solomon. By the vestibule of the temple. This is when he's building the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jacob. And he set up the pillar on the left and called it Boaz. Jacob means uh, firm or upright or stable. Boaz means powerful, mighty. In him it is strength or in him is strength. Uh, These pillars were six feet thick, 27 feet tall. And then they had eight-foot-high brass capitals on top of them. Boaz. Strength. You know, surviving requires strength. And in this case, it required the strength of Boaz to make this work. Wouldn't happen. Now, you may not realize this. I'm going to kind of shift gears just a little bit. You may not realize this, but you are the result of survivors. You won the birth contest. Your family survived history. Your family survived famine. Your family survived disease. Your family uh, survived poverty, slavery. Yeah, every last person in here descends from a slave. If you don't know that, you don't know Roman history. Every last one of us survived wars, enemies, ignorance, And unspeakable tragedies that have never been written. But they happened in our lives. In the sense that it came to us through our family. Your history is a family that carved out a place where there was no place. That's called America. There was no place here. America alone basically refers to survivors. Your people fought for freedom. Your people fought for freedom from slavery. Freedom from Nazis, freedom from Japanese imperialism, 
freedom from the USSR. And though now everybody's scared to death about global warming, I recall waking up regularly and hearing it in school, we need to gather in the hallway and tuck in cover because the nuclear bombs that could go off. We lived with mutually assured destruction. Y'all remember that? If you were born before 1980, you are a survivor. And I'm not bragging about these things. These are just reality. This is your life if you were born before 1980. After you were born, you were put to sleep on our tummies in baby cribs covered with bright colored lead-based paints. And you lived. We had no child-proof lids on any of our medicine. And you survived. There were no doors or cabinets that were child-proof, safety-proof. When we rode our bikes, we rode them without helmets. And we hitchhiked with strangers. As kids, we rode in cars with no car seats. There were no booster seats, seat belts, or airbags in any of our vehicles. We rode in the back of a pickup as a special treat when it was hot. We drank water from a hose pipe. We shared one another's soft drinks with as many as four of our friends. That's about as far as one would go. From one bottle, and no one actually died from that as far as I know of any of my friends. We ate cupcakes, white bread, and real butter. But we were not overweight back then. It's different now. Because we were always outside playing. We would leave home early and play all day long as long as we were back by dark. No one cared. And no one was able to ring us all day long on our cell phones. And yet, somehow, we were okay. We survived. We would spend hours building our go-karts out of scraps that should have been thrown away and ride down steep hills as steep as we could find and ride and forget to put brakes on them and then run into the bushes a few times and then realize we need to figure out a brake system. We did not have PlayStations, Nintendos, Xbox, no video games at all. In fact, no TVs for many years, no video movies or DVDs, no surround sound, no CDs, no iPods, no personal computers, no internet, no chat rooms. How did we survive? We had a thing called friends. And we went outside and we found them. We fell out of trees often. We got cut. I can show you scars. We pour a little kerosene in them and go on. Things that probably would have stitches today and mom would be crying. Broke bones and broken teeth. And yet there were no lawsuits. We ate worms, and we ate mud pies. You say, you ate worms? Have you never eaten an apple off a tree and realized there's a half a worm in the thing? Yes, we ate worms. And ate mud pies. And the worms did not live in us forever. We made up games with sticks and balls, and although we were told it would happen eventually that we would poke our eyes out, most of our eyes are still intact. We rode bikes or we walked to a friend's house and we knocked on their door or rang their bell and just walked in and talked to them. And we weren't afraid. Parents would not bail us out if we broke the law. 
they sided with the law and left us in there at least overnight. We had freedom and we had fair and we had success and we had responsibility and we learned how to deal with it all. That's called surviving. Now, it's not the way they survived today, but it is a way of surviving. It's amazing we survived in it. Charles Lindbergh wrote this. He said, short-term survival may depend on the knowledge of nuclear physics and the performance of supersonic aircraft, but long-term survival depends alone on the character of a man. We must remember that it was not the outer grandeur of the Roman Empire, but the inner simplicity of the Christians that lived on through the ages. Stephen Covey wrote in First Things First, Victor Frankel, an Australian uh, psychologist, survived death camps of, camps of Nazi Germany. Frankel was determined to know why some survived and some did not. He looked at several factors, health, vitality, family, survival skills, intelligence. He concluded that none of these factors were primarily responsible. But the single most significant factor was a sense of future vision. The conviction that they had a mission to perform. Some important work left to do. Survivors of POW camps in Vietnam reported similar experiences. A compelling, future-oriented vision was the primary force that kept many of them alive. Believe in the future. I say all that to say... You're stronger than you think, but you've got to believe in the future. You have already survived many things that you did not think you would have survived. Actually amazing that you did survive. You are survivors even now. Ladies, you are survivors. If you survived a man that you've been married to for 10 years, you're a survivor. You have faith in God and you have already survived stuff that could have killed you. You need to look at the future as if... You believe good's coming. God's left you here for a reason. Keep believing that. God is not out to kill you, and He's certainly not out to damn you. He wants to save you forevermore. He wants to make you an everlasting survivor. He is grateful for how well you've done. But He wants you to do even better. And He's calling you to be the elite survivors of this world. And the way you do that is you respond to his invitation to repent of your sins, to confess his son's name, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins, changing your life to follow him. If you're willing to be a survivor forevermore, the invitation is yours. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing? Print is for you and